We will be reading it in its entirety. This is 1 Samuel chapter 22. God's word to us. Let's give our attention to it. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mitzvah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Herath. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me what my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, and I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Atub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Atub, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Atub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has arisen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant, or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you 
and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Amalek, the son of a tube named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. May the Lord bless his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that we have been given by you. The means of grace that you have provided for your people. So grateful for your preached word this morning. And we ask now that you would attend your word this afternoon. That it would benefit us that even in... um, In darker narratives, we find hope. And so we had asked that you would give us understanding in your word and point us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read a section from our confession before we get started. Just one paragraph. Well, I lost my spot, guys. Sorry. Yep. In chapter 3 of God's decree, paragraph 1, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably all things, whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor have fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, and which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, and power, and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. A couple chapters ahead, moving forward in chapter 5 of Divine Providence, it says this, paragraph 1, God, the good creator of all things, 
in his infinite power and wisdom doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created accordingly, according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite, goodness, and mercy. I want you to consider a different text with me, a remarkable statement. It's actually found in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph made this statement. He says to his brothers who sold him into slavery this, this comment. He says in Genesis 50, 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Think about that statement. Think about what I've read in our confession. But in particular with this statement, this statement conveys really the very principle of our faith and in God and in His providence. As you all know, bad things are almost an everyday occurrence in our lives. We witness them all around us. Turn on the news. In fact, some of these bad things, we'll call it, of our, are of our own doing. And yet we are called to trust in the wise and loving plan of God to work good. Now we know that this is easier said than done, don't we? For some evils are so heinous, so despicable that good shouldn't be uttered even in the same breath. There's no good that can excuse or soften the blow of some evils. All you can do is affirm the ugly blackness of injustice. Well, David faces one of those situations in chapter 22, and it's what we're looking at this afternoon. I'd like to submit to you what we will see in David's response. We're not, get a, we're not going to get a whole lot of answers. But what we do get from this text is the comforting balm of the gospel found in Christ for us. So a couple weeks ago, we left David escaping the Philistines out of Gath. And for a moment there, David was caught like a fish in a net. Things appeared pretty hopeless, as you may recall. Yet by acting crazy, Achish kicked David out and his life was saved. And so now David flees to a cave. And things seem kind of discouraging, don't they? Think about this situation with me. David has a price on his head in his own country. And they can't find political asylum with a neighboring country, so 
He can't find protection even from his neighbors, really. So David's left hiding like an abandoned animal in a dark cave. And if it wasn't for Psalm 34, we would guess that David's mood would be as dark as that cave. Yes, David isn't along for long, though, okay? News gets out that he is in the cave of Adullam, and rumors of his whereabouts reach his family that are in Bethlehem. Now, as you can imagine, being um, on the most wanted list does put your family also in jeopardy. It's that age-old mob retribution. If you can't catch the person you want, then you go after their family. And so David's family gets out of Dodge, and they come to find him. And what a role reversal we have. For you recall back in chapter 16, David was the afterthought eighth child. Even forgotten at the family feast. In fact, he, he was the family errand boy, and we've talked about that. He, he was chewed out even by his older brother for being arrogant when he initially went to the battlefield. But now, now the family seeks David out for what? For help, for assistance, for protection. Those that first thought little of David now depend upon him for protection. And David? David here, he's the good son who provides for his own. David is well aware of the danger that his family is in because of him. David can't be dragging his family around with him as he's in hiding. So this time he heads over east to Moab. And he asks the king of Moab, if his family can sojourn there for a while. Note verse 3 with me. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know that God, excuse me, that I know what God will do for me. And now I do want to remind you of something. Do you remember who David's grandmother is? It was Ruth. And where was Ruth from? Ruth is from Moab. The point is that there's some family history here in Moab. So the king of Moab grants the family political asylum. Now, Scripture tells us that, that any overseer of God's people must care for and manage his own household well. Well, David really does measure up to this standard, and it is noteworthy for us. For as you know, when someone is ambitious, when someone is driven, it's easy for them to forsake their family. Everything they do is, is for the job, and the family takes a back seat. Well, David is not without his ambition. Let me make no mistake, he is striving for the throne. And yet, what is remarkable about him is that he doesn't sacrifice his family on the altar of that desire. David first cares for and protects his family. He puts them under the care of Moab until he can come and get his kingdom. 
Now, it's not just his family that seeks him out in Adullam. This is pretty interesting, isn't it? The rumors of David's whereabouts also makes its way to another group. Look back with me at verse 2. It says, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So those in distress, those in debt, those that are bitter in soul, all come to David. These are the oppressed and the depressed. These are the disenfranchised. These are the discontented. These are the disenchanted. These are the down and outs of society, homeless hobos, Some of them are bankrupt and being chased by bookies. Others have been mistreated and taken advantage of. Some are outlaws and malcontents. If you are a pirate needing a crew, this is your type of people. This is your group. Some of you may recall a story back in the day. I call this the group of misfit toys. If you don't know what that is, ask your children. David takes this mob, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, and depressed, and he takes them all in. In fact, he becomes the leader, or we could say it this way, the prince of these people. And my point is this. The people that no one else wants, David takes in. The people that no one else wants, David takes in. Here, David is running literally for his life, labeled as an outlaw. And yet, at the same time, David has become a refuge to those that are down and out. This is a remarkable picture of David and the manner of his future kingship. David is a leader who doesn't trample on the poor and the needy. Rather, he embraces those that are poor in spirit. He is a home to the homeless. In Psalm 34, David addressed and instructed the humble. Well, these are more likely the the humble whom David was talking about in Psalm 34. Now, there is another bit of information that we learn about while David is on the run. Look at verse 5 with me. Then the prophet of Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. So here we have this prophet named Gad. He shows up out of nowhere. And he speaks, and he speaks God's word to David. He tells David, hey, you're going to have to leave the stronghold of Adullam and head to your own land of Judah. Excuse me. And David, what does he do? Well, he quickly, and this is important, think about this, he quickly and dutifully responds. He obeys the word of the Lord. And this is meant to be a very strong contrast to Saul. Because I want to remind you, 
Twice in the past few chapters, Saul could not bring himself to obey Samuel's prophetic word. Saul is a king who constantly ignored God's word. But David? David is different. He listens to God and he obeys the Lord. And this contrast is made even starker as now for us, the camera focus will shift our attention now back over to Saul. But this time, he's holding court under a sacred tree. Let's note the scene being set up for us in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. So, Saul is on his throne in an open air shrine with all his officials around him are in attendance, okay? Scene is set. Yet, in this regal scene for us, it is cast in a very dark and foreboding light. For what does Saul have in his hand? His spear. Well, that's kind of code. The narrator has kind of told us in the past what has happened. The last two times we were told about Saul holding his spear, what happened? The evil spirit was haunting him and he tried to kill David and he's tried to kill his son Jonathan. This spear signals a hint for us as the reader to look at Saul's psychosis and his jealous bloodlust. When Saul has his spear in his hand, he is all too, uh, all too ready to do whatever it takes to preserve his position as king. And this again, as we will see, proves to be true. For now Saul addresses his high officials with quite the pity party. If you've ever seen a small kid do a fussy fit, just look at King Saul he plays on their loyalty with a guilt trip. You are my fellow Benjaminites. Have you forgotten all the things that I've done for you? Who, who granted you estates and villas and buffets? Who appointed you this cush government job? Will the son of Jesse do the same for you? Will, will, will some guy do this for you, a Benjaminite? Here Saul reminds his officials of all that he has done for them. And, and he does this to guilt them into greater devotion. In fact, he will go on to charge them, listen to this, with conspiracy. Why? Because they didn't tell him about Jonathan's covenant with David. Saul's self-pity here is almost tangible. He says, you, you don't even feel sorry for me that, that, that my own son stirred up an enemy against me. Woe is me, no one loves me. Now, this little fussy fit sounds a lot, or it tells us a lot about Saul. It, it betrays that he can only see things in black and white. Saul really has no taste for nuance. What do I mean by that? Well, listen to me. 
This charge assumes that the officials actually knew about Jonathan and David's covenant. If Jonathan kept his covenant from his dad, then he probably kept it from the other officials. This makes sense, right? But additionally, Saul equates their silence, listen to me, with treason. That is, any hint or any favor towards David, implied or real, Saul sees this as high treason against them, and, and, and there's no middle ground here. In other words, they can't obey and be under Saul and respect David, okay? There is no supporting David and Saul. Rather, it is all Saul or it is nothing. And of course, isn't this the way of jealousy and the lust for power? Paranoia sniffs out even a whiff of disloyalty. That's the worst sort of betrayal. And so Saul puts his officials on the horns of a dilemma. And he does so of his own making. The slightest appearance of being lukewarm is labeled as what? Sedition. Conspiracy against him. Well, as we see in the text, Saul's guilt trip works well. It does at least on one dude. Among Saul's officials is this guy that we read about a couple weeks ago, but we didn't talk about him. His name is Doag, Doag the Edomite. We did see him a couple weeks ago, and as you may recall, we bumped into him at the city of Nob when David picked up food and provisions from the priest. Doag witnessed the interchange between David and Ahimelech. Now, being an Edomite means that Doeg is a mercenary of sorts. His high position and his loyalty, Saul, means this, that it has been purchased. This leaves him without any normal scruples, okay? So, he's, he's a gun for hire. Got it? This proves to be true, for as you'll see, Doeg informs Saul about David's exchange with Ahimelech, but... Something's a little bit off in our narrative. Doeg is truthful about the food and the sword given to David, but he adds something. This is interesting. Note, we're going to read verses 9 and 10 again. Look at it with me. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Atub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Doeg states that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. Now, there was no mention of that in that past chapter. We are not told about this. So we get this strong impression that Doeg is lying. He is making David's visit sound worse than it really was. In short, Doeg is telling Saul, listen to me, what he wants to hear. You see, this is the thing about oppressive and restrictive leadership. It makes people lie. The black and white loyalty demanded by Saul brings falsehood. If you can't be honest without getting smacked, then why be honest at all? 
And Doag's false testimony, what did it do? Well, it ignited Saul's jealousy, for Saul quickly summons Ahimelech and all the priests of Nob, and he calls court into session. Look at verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Atub, and all his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Once the priests are assembled, look at how Saul charges Ahimelech. Verse 13 says, he says, Why have you conspired against me, you the son, and the son of Jesse? Think about this now. Saul so here already assumes what? Guilt. He assumes that they're guilty. Now, one of the fundamental principles of being a good judge is to keep an open mind until all the evidence has been brought forth, where basically where you have heard the testimony of everybody. Out of the mouth of how many? Two or three. But Saul here has already made up his mind. He is already convinced that Ahimelech is just like his son, Jonathan. Clearly, Ahimelech is scheming up insurrection and coup. And Saul particularly stresses on a, on a one particular point. And it's this. He gets really upset about this inquiring of the Lord. Now, why is this third issue so key for us? Well, let me tell you. To inquire of the Lord, one has to reveal what you want to know. That is, for example, David would have to have put forth a question to Ahimelech, a question like something. This is an example. We don't know if David did this or not. Well, I can tell you actually he didn't do it, but bear with me. Will God make me king? That's an inquiry. And then Ahimelech would have to go to the Lord and inquire for a yes or a no answer. And the point is, for Ahimelech to inquire of the Lord means that Ahimelech would have known that David was on the run from Saul. Now Saul's sensitivity on this matter betrays something very important to us. It shows how he views the office of priest. Saul assumes Ahimelech's loyalty is first due to whom? To him as king. And yet, the law of God makes it clear that the priests are beholden to God and not the king. The priesthood was actually a check and a balance on royal power, but not for Saul. He treats Ahimelech as just another one of his servants who owes him total and absolute and blind devotion. It's obvious what the penalty is. Ahimelech knows that his life is on the line when he makes his defense. And this makes Ahimelech's defense all the more impressive. This is incredible. I get really excited about this. Ahimelech opens up with what seems to be in this unthinkable situation. Listen to how he defends. Not himself. He defends who first? David. No, verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king, 
And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Here Ahimelech exposes Saul's number one lie, and it's this, David is a traitor. That's a lie. He's not. He never has been. David is not a traitor. The problem is not with David. Rather, the problem is with Saul. Then Ahimelech, Ahimelech denies the significance of inquiring of the Lord. Look at verse 15. Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant, listen to this, or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. He's clearly saying here, listen, I didn't inquire of, of, for David, Doeg's lion, but if he had, it wouldn't have mattered. For he had done so for David in the past. You see, the inquiring for David is in no way a sign of disloyalty towards Saul. That's the point. Finally, Ahimelech states that he knew nothing about David's fleeing from Saul. Now, you would, you would think that Ahimelech would have led with this last point. Why? Because that typically would have helped his case. But the first two points do more to expose Saul as corrupt and wicked, thus making Saul a tiny bit upset. And this, Ahimelech shows himself to actually be upright. I like this guy. Yes, even in the face of execution, Ahimelech here, listen to me, defends the truth. He defends honor. He will not throw David under the bus, and he will not let the truth be labeled as false or evil. In fact, Ahimelech's boldness for the truth is like salt on Saul's wounds. Saul cannot tolerate any other view but his own. Any hint of dissension must be stamped out, and so Saul gives the order Kill them all. The law says you need two witnesses for the death penalty, but for Saul this does not matter. Doag the Edomite, his testimony, a hireling, is enough. The trial was never about the truth anyway. Let's be clear about that. It was only a sham for Saul to scratch his bloodthirsty itch. He had a taste for blood, and he wasn't going to give up until he was satisfied. And what we read in verse 17 is worse than Order 66. Ask your kids what that is. Saul says, turn and kill the priest of the Lord. I'm going to let that sit for a minute. What did Saul just say? Kill the priest of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the priests are the holy and precious servants of God. So near is the office of priest is to strike them, is to strike God himself. Killing a priest is not just murder then. Listen to me, it is sacrilege. 
It is a profane mutiny against the Lord Almighty. In fact, this act is such a taboo that his servants will not obey the order. Saul has gone too far. They will not follow him in this. Even those that are loyal to him will not go where Saul is going. And so Saul has Doeg, the Edomite, perform the executions. What does a foreign mercenary care anyway? He gets paid regardless of who he kills. In fact, Doeg's killings, they don't stop with the priest. That's right, and I want to think about this. Guys, this is heavy, and it's intended to be. After he slaughtered Ahimelech and all the other priests, by the way, that brings the head count to what? It's right in the text. Eighty-five priests. Next, he goes to Nob, and he puts the entire city to the sword. He kills everyone. Women. Kids, yes, even infants, Doeg even slaughtered the animals. Stop and think about the gravity of this as I read the list from verses 18 and 19. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, does this list sound familiar to us? It's a list from chapter 15, verse 5, where Saul was to devote to destruction the enemy of God's people, the Amalekites. It's the exact list. Of course, Saul failed to wipe out the Amalekites, as you know, and yet what he was unwilling, and listen to me, this is important for you to get, what Saul was unwilling to do under God's direction against the enemy of God's people, he does to God's people. Even to the priestly family of the Lord. Saul is the poster boy of a despot at this very moment. His lust for power, his self-pity, his suspicion has led him to massacre the priest of the Lord. And there's no way to spin this. Saul's actions are pure evil. He, is condemned, he has condemned the innocent. He has executed the guiltless. No good can come from such an evil. And yet, there is one ray of light in our narrative this afternoon. It's dark, but there is one ray of light. One man survives. At least one life was spared. Ahimelech's son, Abathar, slipped away from the bloodshed. He was able to make it to David. Look at David's response in 22 and 23. I won't be much longer. Bear with me. 22, and David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, 
I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. There are a few noteworthy observations here. First and foremost, David takes the blame. He essentially says, I knew that Doag was a rat. I should have done things differently. He acknowledges that. It is my fault that these priests are dead. Here, David learns well the burden of being a good leader. That is, the buck stops with him. David realizes that his actions doesn't just affect him any longer. They have far-reaching consequences for many others. His deception in Nob led to the death of all of these priests. And so David doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't become paralyzed with shame or grief. He doesn't shift the blame for his bad upbringing or how he was left out with the sheep all by himself. Rather, he acknowledges and owns up to his own short-sightedness And he will think once again before doing a deception like this again. Good leadership doesn't mean that you're paralyzed and can't do things anymore. Good leadership means this. I acknowledge my wrongdoing. Let's move forward. Secondly, David promises to be Abathar's protector. He takes Abathar in and he gives him a safe place. Instead of demanding, listen to me, instead of demanding the priesthood to serve him as Saul did, David promises to serve the priest. Think about it. Abathar has lost his entire family in a single day. They're all dead. So David says this, I'll give you a new family. Come be with me. David can't give Abathar his family back, but David can be a family to him. And so with this narrative this afternoon, in David, we see the protection of our true king. We witness the goodness of our true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. For David begins his pilgrimage towards the throne as a prince of the homeless, as a father to the fatherless, as a refuge to the hurting and the oppressed. And so also, Jesus was known as what? The friend of sinners. Jesus didn't come to hang out with all of those people that have it together. Rather, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He spent time with people whose lives were an utter mess. They were oppressed. They had rap sheets a mile long. They were the down and out. Their lives had fallen on hard times. And often because their own sins and mistakes. It was because of their own actions. Jesus didn't just care for the innocent victims, but He also cared for the sinners. That's a big deal in our day and age. We are quick to run to a victim. But the gospel reaches the victimizers too for you to ponder. 
They were bankrupt because they were irresponsible. They didn't pay their bills. They were shunned because they committed adultery or some other lewd behavior. And yet Jesus was a refuge to such people to show forth that He, listen to me, is the stronghold for sinners. Christ, with sinners, He was with sinners to reveal then the sweetness of the gospel, for we are all sinners. We are all unworthy. We are all broken people. Even if we think we have it all together on the outside, every one of us know how broken we really are. On the inside, we are a swirl of autonomous, rebellious sinners with evil desires and perversion. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, it's precisely for, for this that Christ came to die. He didn't come for the strong, but for the weak. He came to be the shepherd king of the humble and the unworthy and so beloved. In Christ, you'll find a home of healing. The gospel freely offers to you then the open arms of your Savior. He offers to you forgiveness of absolutely all of your sins. And He does so as a gift. Listen to me. Give me just a couple more minutes. Christ provides healing for your deepest wounds. He doesn't Give us all the answers to our why questions. Let me be clear on that. But among our sufferings, among our curiosity, He does provide the balm of mercy, of grace. In fact, this aspect of the gospel means that God has given you a church. God's people to sit under the means of grace, and He does so as a hospital. The church is not a club for the upright and socially respectable. It's a hospital for sinners. And at the same time, every one of us that have made a profession, we're justified in Christ. Church is the family of Christ purchased by His blood. And Christ is the King of those humble and broken sinners. And so when Christ first welcomed us with all that wretched sin, all that dirty laundry, He reminds us to welcome others that are in the same place that we used to be. You see, for those of us that have been forgiven much, we better start loving much. Christ welcomed others, so should we. Christ was and still is so patient with sinners. And so we ought to be with one another. Christ has called us to Himself so that we together might be the home for the homeless. Yes, the pains and evil of life, the suffering of life are numerous. But the comforts of Christ are far surpassing. His grace is never-ending his love endures forever, and His redemption, listen to me, is perfect. He is your healer. He is your comforter. He is your royal protector. And like David said to Abathar, so Jesus says to us this afternoon, 
Fear not. With me you shall be in safety. The storms of life can be severe. Some evils in our lives go unchecked and unexplained, and they will until the end. But in the midst of all, listen to me, Jesus Christ is your rock, your refuge, your stronghold, so cling to him. Take refuge in him who is our shepherd king. Brothers and sisters, if you have weak faith, come to the Lord. It's still faith and it's real. It's a gift given to us by God. Don't stay there. May your weak faith be grow strong so that you'll walk before Him. And I'll end with this and we'll pray. Know this. Know that God works all things for the good of those that love Him. Don't use, or so many, I hear people mock that text. And yet I stand on it every day and I, you should too. Not one thing that befalls you, not one, will be unused by our triune God to love us and to sanctify us. He conforms us into the image of Christ. Everything He utilizes for His good pleasure and glory, for our redemption, and for our sanctification. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you're so kind to us. You're so patient and merciful. We all are so grateful that you pursued us even when we did not want to be pursued. None of us had our act together. None of us got our act cleaned up so we could approach you. We were in the dregs of our sin and we loved it. And yet you loved us enough to pursue us. That you chased us down and you wrecked us. And we're so grateful for your mercy and for your grace for the sustaining power of the gospel found in Christ. And we would ask that you would strengthen your people today. And for those that have not bowed the knee, show mercy to them. Allow this to be the day. where your spirit will energize the word proclaimed this morning and yes, even this afternoon. Grant them faith and repentance. May your will be done in the lives of your people and in this congregation. We pray this in the name of Jesus.